This is Fans on the Run, a podcast made by, for, and about Beatles fans. And now, here's your host, Ethan Alladay. All right, hello, 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 hello. Welcome back to Fans on the Run, the Kamikaze Beatles podcast. Uh, I haven't used that description for the show in quite a while. It's I feel like I'm cycling through like bits I say at the beginning of the show because I've told the same joke about four times. Uh, actually, no, four is a bit of an understatement. It's probably 20. I've done, God, almost 40 episodes now. Um, yeah, I'm not that funny, so I'm running out of material. Again, this is the ultimate way. It's the scientifically proven way to start a show by saying how bad you are at hosting a show because it lowers the expectations. <laughs> Anyways, mystery guest, how are you doing today? I'm great, Ethan. Happy to be here. I am I, I really got to stop doing the whole mystery guest thing cuz it's it's not like your name's in the title and the thumbnail and the, <laughs> it's it's not like it's a mystery. So, we will burst that mystery right now. He's the author of such books as Revolver, How the Beatles Reimagined Rock and Roll, Solo in the 70s, and the FAQ series of books for Hal Leonard, and many others. He is also the host of fellow podcast Something About the Beatles. Will you please give a very, very warm welcome to Robert Rodriguez. Welcome to Fans on the Run, Robert. Thanks. It's so glad to be here. I... We'll we'll see about that. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. So so how's the weather down there in merry old Chicago? Well, we got a sunny day at last. It had been overcast the past couple days, but it's starting to have the reality of autumn. It's around fifty right now. So although it's sunny, it's a little bit cool. So uh, shorts and t-shirts are kind of getting put away now for the year. Yeah. I was talking with someone. I I'm still as a Canadian getting used to talking with people about uh, Fahrenheit. Mm. So it's like fifty. It's like oh fuck me, that's hot. <laughs> it's like wait no, our fifty is like their one hundred and twenty. Oh yeah. yeah. No, this would be um, <laughs> somewhere between. I got I guess an ideal nice day outside would be around 70 75 so for it to be 50 it's definitely easing into sweater weather okay so probably like 15 celsius or something something like that you know it's every time i listen to um to uh a beds are burning by midnight oil and there's that <laughs> line in there about uh, the desert sun 45 degrees i'm thinking jesus that's cold <laughs> yeah. what are they talking about Oh man, because when people say, "Oh, it's, you, you know, it's 120 degrees out," uh-huh. it's like you are going to die. Right, right. You're cooking eggs but, on the sidewalk. Yeah, no, that's just like 50. Ah, oh. But anyways, that concludes our lesson about the systems of measuring temperature. C versus F. There, there you go. You learn something new every day. I already am. That's good to hear. And now I'd like to jump right back to the beginning. Robert, how did you first discover the Beatles? Well, it was the kind of thing where I was too young to really be that aware of them, other than there was an entity called Beatles that existed and they made music. And honestly, I think my awareness of the Beatles really came through reruns of the Beatles cartoon as a kid. But when everything else that's in cartoon form is like Bugs Bunny or Tom and Jerry or something like that, you don't differentiate and think, oh, these exist in real life. 
it's a cartoon <laughs> and it happens to be music. And so I didn't know that the Beatles were real people till I got quite a bit older, I'd say. But I did have two older brothers that bought records. So I was vaguely aware of certain records that came into the house. But it wasn't anything I paid a whole lot of mind to until much later on when I started being a little more self-sufficient and choosing my own music and listening to the radio, my radio stations and all that stuff. Very big and top 40, by which time the Beatles were long gone. And really, the gateway drug for me was the Red and the Blue albums. The Red and the Blue? Yeah. Uh, were you around when those came out? I Well, as it happened, the Red album was the very first album I bought with my own money. And it had been out probably almost a year by that time. I think I had some Christmas money that I spent it on. So, um, but but the existence of them because I didn't really frequent record stores or anything like that. It was brought to us by my uh, music teacher at school, who taught a unit on the Beatles, and that was the year they came out. So she was using those as like tracing their progress, like, here's the crash course in Beatles, we're going to start with this red record, then we're going to pivot into the blue record, and that put on the table before me, oh, Beatles are real, and not only did these guys make She Loves You, and I Want to Hold Your Hand, but also Yellow Submarine, and Strawberry Fields, and Hey Jude, and Here Comes the Sun. And these were all songs that I had vague awareness of, but not a lot, not instant familiarity, and honestly, at that point, I didn't differentiate differentiate that much between Beatles and solo Beatles. So I kind of knew about Uncle Albert because that was an earworm. And mm-hmm. um, I didn't know that it was not a Beatles recording. To me, you know, Beatles had a certain sort of sound. But not until the Red and Blue albums came out and I actually sat and listened to them, acquired them myself, saw the breakdown. And if you've ever seen like an original pressing of those, they came with this insert called your Inf- For Your Information that was purportedly a discography, although there's a lot of flaws in it, that put out in front of you all the albums and all the singles, more or less. I own like four copies of that album, and I've never seen an insert like that. So they must have vanished, unless maybe they didn't come in the Canadian pressings, which would be weird, because it was an Apple thing. But nonetheless, that was my first education, because you have to think back, we're talking mid-70s. You can count on one hand the number of Beatle books that were in print, or at least that we had easy access to. There was, there was no internet, there's no YouTube. So finding information on the Beatles was really, you know, you, you had to hunt it down. It was very analog. And so the fact Because the only Beatle book that I can really think of that was prevalent in the early 70s was still the Hunter Davies book. Right. And my, my story about that is that my older brother, who's eight years older than me, he had a adult couple friend that lived him and his wife lived up the street from us and um, so they were much older than me in fact they had a kid but when i would go visit with my brother and they had a record collection the first thing i did was trawl through there to see if they had any beatles because all i had was the red and blue albums that time i remember they had a lot of beach boys but i think the only beatles they had was pepper anyway i noticed up on the bookshelf they had the hunter davies book and i'm like oh man that's cool can i borrow that and i'm like 10 years old or something like that and they're like, no, I don't think this is really for kids. And it was because, come to find out, there's some F-bombs in that. So he didn't want to be you know, <gasps> um, complacent, com- complacent or, or not complacent. Um, he didn't want to corrupt me. 
at that age yeah. and, and have my parents come after or something. So I didn't get to read it from his collection at that point. But, um, you know, it, it was it was the kind of thing where, you know, you'd go to the library and see what they had. And the one book I do remember them having was The Longest Cocktail Party. Yeah. So that's not your typical. It's not a Beatle history. Although in the back, they did have a discography in there. So that was helpful. <laughs> I, I was going to say that was like the other book that I can remember from the early 70s. Mm. Mm-hmm. Uh, well. What the hell's the other one that I'm Well, the I'm big one of? was it came out, I guess, in 75, and that was Illustrated Record. Yes. Yeah, and that, that rocked my world. That was the thing where you've got this, you know, it's basically the, the trim of an album. You know, it, it's like 12 by 12, and just, it's so graphic heavy, so full of color and black and white and full reproductions of album covers, but they're all British. And that's <laughs> the thing that kind of threw me. It's like, what are they talking about here? This hard day's night. Where's the instrumental music? You know, because I was yeah. used to the American. Why is band. it blue? Yeah, yeah, and it's got it's got lots of pictures on it. We just have four yeah. pictures on ours. So, yeah, you had to come to terms with that at some point. So, apart from the the red and the blue, what was the first Beatle album that you remember experiencing in its entirety? Probably Abbey Road. And what was that like? It was amazing to me because I had no frame of reference really at that point other than judging the picture on the cover. And so that, since it more or less dovetailed with what was on the Blue Album cover, I reckon that that was late in her career. And I didn't know, well, it's the very last thing they recorded because I was aware of Let It Be and from Illustrated Record, that being talked about, you know, as the, the cardboard tombstone. So it was the last thing they did, apparently, although it was done the year before. So <laughs> it was a little muddy in my thinking, but I, I thought it was very joyful. And I, it's funny because it come together, I knew, something I knew, and uh, Here Comes the Sun I knew, even though Here Comes the Sun was not a single. It must have gotten enough airplay that I was familiar with it by the time I heard it. And so hearing all this other stuff, even Octopus's Garden, I think I heard on Sesame Street or something, because it seemed Probably. like I had some kind of children's TV association with it. But you hadn't heard, like, Maxwell Silver Hammer beforehand? I hadn't. Or Oh Darling, or I Want You, She's So Heavy, much less the medley. So that blew my oh. mind, because it was just, it, it just sounded very joyful to me, and then kind sort of trying to figure out, well, where does this fall in the chronology? Because I had the vague awareness that they'd split up and that it wasn't pretty. And also, because I had older brothers, they would always feed me misinformation about stuff, about the world, just so they can get a kick out of watching me go around repeating it. And so, you know, telling me Paul was dead was one of these things that um, I had some sort of awareness of, oh, I wonder if he's really dead. Is that why the Beatles broke up? Look, his eyes are closed on the album cover. I'm not really sure. But wait a minute, there's this guy in a band called Wings. So what is it? So, you know. How, how far did you go down that uh, Paul is dead rabbit hole? I, I wasn't really sure other than I saw when my brother pointed out to me, listen to the end of this record. I'm going to turn this up now. And you will hear John Lennon say, I bury Paul. So I remember I was young enough that that terrified me when I heard that. but then. I'm like hearing from my friends, oh, look, Wings put out silly love songs, you know, so that's Paul McCartney. It was very confusing to me, but once I started to actually read books, like Illustrated Record, and around that time, the uh, Castleman Pedrozic book Altogether Now came out, I think that sort of... Shout out to Wally. Yeah, shout out to Wally. That sort of settled the matter for me, that it's like, okay, 
I guess that just wasn't true, even though there's mm-hmm. all this apparent, all these apparent clues on records that, uh, you know, it seemed to point in that direction. But the, the clues are fun, regardless. You know, that was the reason why I started buying Beatle records instead of just listening to the Beatles on the computer. Mm-hmm. Because my uncle told me, if you hold... Of like a butter knife up to the bass drum on the Sgt. Pepper cover, it says one 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 X he die with an arrow pointing at Paul. Yeah, and it's like, oh shit, I gotta see this. Yeah, yeah, and there's the you know it, with Abbey Road, where do you stop with just the the front cover image itself? It, yeah, there, there's so many things there, and once you have that information, it's funny as an adult. You know, once I came into my own and had a pretty good command of things, had read a few books. Once you start to recognize that here was something that was completely untrue, yet somebody, you know, or many individuals went to the trouble of crafting this mythology to fit the conclusion they'd already come up with as a starting point and then worked backwards. I mean, the the crash that was supposed to have killed him was supposed to have happened in November of 66, yet here you have June 66, yesterday and today, being pointed to as a clue. Look, he's sitting in a box. You know, it's like... Yeah, it, 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 people will, will swallow this. And it, it was very educational for me to recognize that there are people that will tell you bullshit with a straight face and give you all this apparent evidence to back it up for something you know is not true. And once you start looking at the world through those eyes, it makes you incredibly cynical pretty fast. But yeah. it's, it's probably better to have that awareness than not to. I, I just always get a kick out of all of those clues. Uh-huh. E- even if it is... Even if the Beatles had planned it all, even if it's just a coincidence, mm-hmm. I just I just get such a kick out of it. Oh, yeah. It's it just so much stuff that, you know, in lyrics, like the, the hardest one to explain away is, here's another clue for you all. Because it's like, well, what does he mean? And then, of course, we have the Playboy interview where he says, well, this is me. Here, Paul, have this crumb. Here, have this stroke because I'm leaving you for Yoko. But at the time, it's like, clue. That, that's That's pretty blatant, you know? And then things like one and one and one is three, got to be good looking, so hard to see. You know, all the stuff that seemed to point toward deliberate cooperation from the Beatles, it was just very, very confusing. I think before we completely abandon this Paul is dead topic, uh-huh. I, I would just like to say my favorite clue out of anything. It was on the, uh, what the hell, the Apple Jam on George Harrison's All Things Must Pass, mm. the Johnny's Birthday. Mm-hmm. If you play that in reverse, uh, it says, he never wore no shoes, we all know he was dead. Oh my god. <laughs> now, who the hell went to the trouble of turning that backwards to look for something? Again, it was the early 70s, people were on doing some substances, mm-hmm. and people had time on their hands. Apparently so. No internet, so what are you going to do? So... I want to kind of ask, what what do the Beatles mean to you? Now? Uh, I'll ask, what did they mean to you then, and in comparison to what they mean to you now? Well, I guess the common point between then and now is that their music is just so joyous and life-affirming, and you know, the, the, the sign of a, good, of a successful song is the feeling that it gives you. And with them from start to finish, the, the, the alchemy packed into those grooves as a band and with George Martin, it is just amazing that for something not expected to have 
that long of a life when they're crafting these. They just want to have a hit record. You know, they yeah. want to take their their career to the next level and you know have a string of hit records. You know, something they couldn't have been thinking beyond that other than the whole we want to be bigger than Elvis thing. So <laughs> they're not imagining at any point. 50 years from now, people are going to be listening to the stems and deconstructions and isolations and just digging you know, down to this molecular level into what you guys did and how you did it and all that stuff. They have no, they, they can't comprehend something like that. They just want to make really good records, really good commercial records. And so they did. So that's your baseline. But beyond that, you know, just through living life, through studying this, you know, I'm a history geek. And it is such incredibly rich history because not only is it just read like a series of miracles, like a series of minor miracles that they just happen to meet the right people at the right time or be put in the right place at the right time, you know, all through at least 67. And then Brian dies and that's when it takes a turn. But up until that point, it was just an unbelievable roll of the dice that kept breaking their way over and over and over again. So... That part fascinates. And then there's the aspect of, well, you know, some of the mythology that came from them themselves or that we've been taught all these years, it's not necessarily so. So there's a big part of me that's drawn to setting the record straight and getting to the bottom of something and finding out that the way you've been taught something isn't the way it really was, that sort of thing. So they fascinate on that level. There's just a million different ways that they draw you in. And the funny thing is, People just automatically assume a couple things about me if they talk to me. They assume, number one, Revolver is my favorite album. It's up there, and I think it's probably their most important album. But just for sure, music listening, I don't think it's don't, my favorite don't album. Don't spoil what your favorite album choice is. We'll get to that Okay, I will later say in that, the show. But that's, people, yeah, people make assumptions. They also assume that the Beatles is the be-all, the, the be end-all in my life, that my house must be covered wall-to-wall with Beatles artifacts, things like that. No, they're they're something that became sort of a career but i didn't set out to make that happen it just you know one opportunity led to another to another so that's just the way it set out to i didn't want to be the guy to wrote all those beetle books not that i resent it or regret it i as long as i have something to say i'll keep putting them out but it was not a life plan it just worked out that way so to circle back to your original question what they mean to me now is just being out in the world and recognizing with whatever status I have that people want to hear what I say about the Beatles or what I do on the show with the guests that I have and what I put out, social media, stuff like that. It's like the secular religion. It's something that is this powerful unifying force that no matter where somebody comes from, what age, what demographic, if they are into the Beatles, it's like instant connection. And they get a lot of the same thing out of what people get out of normal traditional religion you know it gives exactly. them joy it gives them a peace of mind it gives them you know the a oneness with other people yeah so i i would say i don't think it's to overstating them, things to like s- the beetle fest is their mass yeah it's their mecca absolutely it, it's every year you know that's that's what we do you know we face the east get on our carpet and go to marco beals's fest so <laughs> i i think that uh it's not overstating things to say that it has that kind of power so on a whole other level that intrigues me it's like these guys wanted to be in a band and then they wanted to make music and then they wanted to have a hit record there was no grand plan other than the vague ambition to want to be the goffin and king of england or bigger than elvis 
And so they set in motion something. They tapped into something that became far bigger than anything they could have done on purpose. And that's fascinating to me. Uh, I want to ask you now, uh, you're well known as someone who's written a number of Beatle books. How did, mm-hmm. how did you get started doing that? I think it started, I mean, if you really want to trace it back to its its origin, before I was a Beatle fan as a, a grade school kid, I was recognized as somebody who could write. And when something comes easy to you, you undervalue it. You just assume everybody can do it. You always want what you don't have. And I would have been a lot happier back then to be a competent lead guitarist or be able to hit a baseball consistently well or something like that. Instead, I could write. I could put thoughts down in a way that adults approved of and was succinct and it was creative and all other jazz that it's like I I got recognized for it, but it wasn't something that meant a whole lot to me because I wanted to be a musician and I (laughs) formed bands and I did that for years and years and years. But um, once I came to a point and it it was only really when I went to college that it became pointed out to me you know, not everybody can do what you can do. You're really good at this and you really should do something with it instead of, you know, chasing stupid pipe dreams that are never going to go anywhere. So like, fine. And because I was a history geek, an opportunity came my way to write a book that basically was putting to paper a lot of the stuff that was floating around in my head anyway. And that was a book on the 1950s. And they wanted it sort of broken down into categories that would be easy to digest. So I'm like, fine, I could write about music, I could write about film, TV, politics, all the stuff that I was really into. And being the kind of guy that I am, it's like, well, I don't want to do what everybody else probably does anyway. You know, I'm just assuming that other people have done this kind of thing before. I want to do something different. So one of the chapter ideas I came up with is what a bunch of different celebrities, different people that became famous later on from, say, the 60s, 70s on, what they were up to in the 50s. And I thought that would be kind of a cool look back. You know, you know them now for whatever they're famous for, but what were they like in the 50s? So in that chapter, I did one of the, in my list was the Beatles. What were they up to in the 50s? And ultimately, I guess that chapter didn't get used or something. I wrote, I overwrote. They wanted like, (laughs) I don't know, 80,000 words. And I gave them like 125,000 words. And I said, start hacking away. So I kept that stuff in my pocket. And then the idea came to me. It's like, well, what do I know about? What do I care about? Oh, Beatles. Well, I've got the first chapter already written. So that became the first chapter of the book that ultimately came out as a collaboration with a friend of mine who was a baseball writer, Stuart Shea. But basically, I had already blueprinted it, came up with the title, came up with the format for it. And he was working on a book. He's like, hey, why don't we just write one together? I was like, fine. You know, you've got publishing connections and I don't. So that became the first FAQ book. And that was why it was sort of a one-off in that sense. I tell people I wrote that first book just so I could write the second book. The second book being 2.0 about from 1970, from the breakup to the death of John Lennon. Because that was the period where I became a fan. So I really (laughs) wanted to write a book covering the 70s where you've got these four guys sort of coming to terms with their own artistic voice while still laboring under the giant shadow of their collective past. I thought that would be a cool story. So that was how 2.0 got written. That was always sort of in the back of my mind, but you have to write the first book first. Mm -hmm. Well, 
now that we're talking about Beetle books, I want to ask you, apart from your own books, which are which are very good, what is your favorite Beetle book? One that I recommend to people that I like a lot is by a guy named Stephen Gould. Are you familiar with that one? Uh, what's the name of the book? The name of the book is Can't Buy Me Love. Or, is that the one? Wait a minute. Yes, Can't Buy Me Love. Jonathan Gould, not Stephen Gould. So it's it's this it's like a, a social contextual history of the Beatles from day one going back to England that really puts you in the context of what they did and how they did it and where it all came from in a way that other books don't really they, they treat the Beatles like they're in their own little bubble and not what was going on around them that informed them. So I found that one of the most fascinating books, and I think it came out in the early 20th century, 21st century, like I want to say we're in 2006 or something like that. So it's post-anthology, but nobody had done that great of a synthesis to me of putting on the history around them of the Beatles not emerging from a vacuum, but actually being susceptible to all these cultural forces going on. And, you know, it, it doesn't take anything away from their achievement at all. It just makes you sort of understand how it came to be. So your recommendation is Can't Buy Me Love by Jonathan Gould. Yeah, absolutely. That would be one. Now, I would say that that's kind of a grown-up version of one of the early books that I read that a lot of fans of a certain age really still revere, and that's Beatles Forever by Nicholas (laughs) Schaffner. That came out in, I think, like 76? Yeah, 76, 77, something like that. And it was a fantastic book when it came out. But it's the kind of thing where, and we've discussed this on the show, you know, with all due respect to the late Nicholas Schaffner, it was as good a book as he could have done at the time. But because, from our perspective now, we've got access to a lot more data to write their story and culturally contextualize and all that stuff that he didn't necessarily have, that, um, you know, it, it's a little bit obsolete, except for people that still revered out of nostalgia, because it was the first good Beatle book they read. What I like to do on this show sometimes is kind of, in the most delicate way, stir shit. I want to ask you, is there a Beatle book out there that is fairly popular that you don't like? Sure. <laughs> uh, yeah, that would be the one written by their engineer. And Jeff I say Emmerich? written, yes. Um, co-written, and I would say that maybe a lot of what's wrong with it comes from the co-writer, not because he's purposely trying to mislead, but I think that he was trying to write a good book that would engage people. He was the writer, Emmerich was the guy that was there, and (laughs) you've got almost like oppositional forces at work because Emmerich's knowledge really was kind of limited. And I say this because... Like the Beatles, he was busy doing his job and not taking notes and logging things religiously, things like that. So this story has come out. When that book was first published, there were people that were his colleagues, notably Ken Scott, who was an engineer there that got promoted to working with the Beatles when Emmerich walked out during the White Album sessions. And Ken Scott went out and had this glorious career producing David Bowie and all this other stuff that came out in the 70s and 80s. So he was like, hold on there, Hoss. When you got your book contract, you called up everybody you ever worked with and said, please give me some stories. I don't remember enough to fill out this book. (laughs) And he goes, 
That's what ended up in your book. Furthermore, this is Ken Scott's critique. He goes, there's all kinds of things. I read your manuscript and there's all kinds of things that are flat out wrong. And that's even not even addressing the editorializing going on where you never miss an opportunity to kiss Paul's ass. You never miss an opportunity to put down George or, or portray him as inept and bad on his instrument. Um, John, you're kind of, you know, you can go either way on it. Ringo is like a non-entity to you. Furthermore, you've got, you know, these gratuitous slams that George Martin threw out. And it, basically, you take credit for every great thing that happened with them. So you have to get suspicious of any book that recounts dialogue decades after the fact, word for word. And just as a, you know, reading it casually, sort of skimming it, I was finding things that I knew to be flat out wrong over and over again. And it, it, it's one of these things where people love it because it is such a compelling read. It, it's, a, it's, it's almost like a novel. It reads really well. If you could put aside your personal feelings that clearly he's settling some scores here. You know, and you say, well, who did he work with after the Beatles broke up? Oh, he worked with Paul. No wonder he gets the gold star treatment. You know, who who stiff-armed him? George did. Okay, I understand that now. That sort of thing. You put that aside, it's an entertaining read. But yeah. if you want something factual, and I, I guess being from the perspective I am that you have to go where the history takes you, where the data takes you, and also contextualize it, recognize what evidence there is how it was created what was the context was it for public consumption was it something that was caught on tape that, that wasn't meant to be public that sort of thing all those pieces you can come to some conclusions about what rings true and what rings false so when people regard it as some kind of holy bible i think that speaks more to the hunger for a definitive account of how these records were made than ever was given to us. George Martin's book, at least he had the good taste to, you know, he, there's mistakes in his book too, but most of the time he says, I can't remember, or, you know, he'll tell you if, um, if, if he can't flesh out a story in detail. But That's uh, all yeah. you need is ears, right? Yeah, his first one. And he went back to the well a few times after that. But um, Emmerich presents himself like he noted everything he was responsible for all their innovations and his word is gospel and too many people take it like that it's not i equate it with alan williams the man who gave the beatles away <laughs> which is another great work of hyperbole but at least it's entertaining as hell yeah so, it's it's fucking he, alan williams yeah he's a raconteur you know, he's not a historian so you know to read Man Who Gave the Beatles Away with a massive grain of salt and not use it as a historic document to back up things in your book. And unfortunately, I see Jeff Emmerich here, there, and everywhere, citations for it in books that came out after. It's like, you cannot take this man's word as gospel. And I was guilty of it myself when I wrote Revolver. It's like the whole thing about putting a condom on a microphone, which come to find out later, no, it was a plastic bag they put on the microphone. Although, you know, it makes for a better story to have it be a condom. You know, I... I I am as guilty as anybody of falling for it, and I shouldn't have. But, you know, if I had to do it all over again. But you ask. That's a question that, that that's a book people revere that I think is just bad history. You heard it here first. Actually, well, not first. <laughs> Many times on my it, own show. It, yeah, and it, it's been said a lot. It's, it's, it's entertaining to read. It's about yeah. as historically accurate as... Alan Williams. Yeah. <laughs> I, I was going to think of something to compare it to, but then my brain just kind of gave out, and it's like, eh, you know. 
Yeah. It's, it's a real stream of consciousness. Yeah. So I want to ask you now, what about Revolver stuck out to you enough to make you want to write a book about it? I think it was a combination of things. One was that Pepper was the one that always got lauded as being the greatest work the Beatles ever did, as well as one of the greatest rock albums of all time. And I, in my gut, I felt wrong and wrong. It doesn't. It's not even the best collection of songs by the Beatles. And as far as great rock albums go, I mean, geez, there's a ton of other things. And that's if you want to play the game of quantifying art, which I think is stupid anyway. But to me, it's it's a one-off experiment that the Beatles did as a direct reaction to not touring anymore. They wanted to do something grand in its place and make it an event. And from that level, from that perspective, it was an event. You cannot deny that. And you cannot deny the people who were of age when it came out that it was something close to life-changing. You know, just the, the religious feeling they get talking about that album, of how they first heard it and what it left them feeling and all that stuff. So sociologically, it has that kind of power. But I didn't think it stacked up well alongside the work that came before it or arguably after it. So there's, there's different ways you can quantify things if you're trying to come up with some sort of yardstick for success. One might be beyond record sales, might be, well, how many songs on this collection of tunes were covered by other artists? Not a whole lot. I think, um, I, I broke it down one time, I think Abbey Road has the most covers for a single album by other people. You know, so that's one measure of, of its place in the hierarchy. But really what I was getting at was the thought that occurred to me was that the more I knew about the making of Pepper, the more I recognized that it was more a McCartney and Martin-driven project than it was a full integrated Beatle project, unlike Revolver. Revolver, I came to, once I'd started the book, I sort of intuited this, but then the thesis really started to take shape once I started doing the research, and that was it represented this high watermark of cooperation between the four of them as a band and with their producer in terms of just the egalitarian spirit that it was created in, where everybody's helping out everybody else on their songs in a way that there's no one Beatle driving the project as there would be ever after. It's still the four-headed monster at this point. And the fact that you open the album with a George Harrison tune, it's an unheard of thing. That was a very important thing to the Beatles. The opening tunes and the closing tunes was very important to them. They put a lot of thought into that. They give it to George, and it's a song where Paul McCartney's playing lead guitar, John Lennon helped with the lyrics, you know, great drumming from Ringo. It's like everybody's stepping up to better the, the end product. It doesn't matter whose name is on the, the songwriting credit. Same thing with Tomorrow Never Knows, you know, the bookends of the album. Everybody's stepping up. Ringo's fantastic drum pattern. Uh, George Paul with the Rick. tape loops. Yeah, that that makes the song. I mean, it's essentially a one chord song, and, and adding that color that brings you into that world of psychedelia. You've got George Harrison with the tambura for the first time on a rock and roll record that gives you that exoticism that inextricably ties Indian sound to psychedelia. You know, that's mm -hmm. where that's where it comes from. So, it, it, to me, it's an amazing achievement. And, and right down the line, you know, the sort of the lyrics to Eleanor Rigby being basically written by committee with the people that were around, you know, Pete Shotton and Ringo and George coming up with key contributions to that, no matter what Lennon would claim later about, you know, writing half the song, which was nonsense that came straight from Alan Klein. No, 
That's not how it was written at all. And it, there's the witnesses to back that up. But anyway, it just goes right down the line how how much of a cooperative they were on that record in a way that they never would be again. They'd be pros, they'd be old hands, they'd be, you know, rising to the occasion to create the product, but not in that same spirit where there was less competition or, say, eye-rolling as there was when George brought in a new song at Twickenham. You know, it was really going on this destination where they didn't know what the outcome was going to be. Whereas by the time of Pepper, you know, John's an acid casualty. George has got his head out in the, in the Himalayas somewhere. Ringo's learning to play chess. So you don't have quite that same level of investment. You've got Paul stoked by Coke and Martin pushing this thing along, striving to create art with a capital A, which for, you know, once that album comes out, suddenly you've got the Leonard Bernsteins of the world and Time Magazine, you know, the establishment media finally recognizing that rock was capable of producing lasting art. So they hit that goal, you know, wh- whether it was conscious or not, that's what came. And I think ever after, that's when they sort of retreated from finally getting that validation from the establishment they may have consciously or unconsciously they've been seeking. But, you know, it's not to say that John's contributions are worthless, but he certainly wasn't driving the engine anymore. And it's fascinating to me that Revolver comes at exactly their half-life you know, the first album, 63, Revolver, 66, last album, 69. That That's where that sort of baton is being passed. From that point on, it's Paul that's driving their artistic engine with every big Beatle idea that comes. You know, Pepper, the whole concept of that, Apple, Magical Mystery Tour, Get Back, Abbey Road, all that comes from Paul because he's the one pushing them along, especially once Brian dies and that, that vacancy needs to be filled. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to ask you, um, kind of unrelated, but not mm. really. Um, what is your? Do you have any particular favorite memories throughout your life that have been kind of punctuated by the Beatles? That mm, interesting question. <sighs> Definitely things that I experienced, especially when I was younger, like before I became the full-blown fan. I do remember I was very young. There was an eclipse, and I want to say it was 1970, so as I think about this now, the Beatles hadn't really quite officially broken up yet, although, you know, behind the scenes it was a different matter, but I remember as a kid watching the footage of the eclipse on TV, and they played Here Comes the Sun, and so that was a pleasant association. I didn't really know what the Beatles were then, other than the cartoon, but it was the song that stuck in my head, and I just thought it was something very sweet, so it's like... You know, once I became familiar with the Beatles and Abbey Road, it's like, oh, it's that song, you know? And it's the kind of thing where it's so familiar and so in your DNA, and you find out later it was, never was a single. It's like, what? You know, how is that possible? So that would be one thing. Um, definitely, once I'd burned through the official releases and whatever pocket money I've got from the little jobs you do when you're a kid, you, you start looking to, you know, well, how can I pursue my habit further? Oh, there's these ads in the back of Rolling Stone magazine for unreleased Beatles, live recordings, things like that. So I started acquiring my bootlegs that way when they're still on vinyl. And so I've got memories of, because you've got no information whatsoever on what you're about to drop the needle on. You know, when did this come out? When was this recorded? None of that stuff. So it's like, 
it, it was sort of a magical experience when you start hearing unfamiliar but unmistakably Beatles sounds coming out of the speakers. So the one that particularly blew my mind was Sweet Apple Tracks, which to me, it, it represented, this is a whole new way of listening to the Beatles because you're flying the wall now. It's the Nagra tapes from Twickenham, which I didn't know at the time. I just knew it was the Let It Be project. But the cover was the photo from the Revolution promo. So it was very confusing. <laughs> you didn't know what the hell you were listening to other than, oh, these are some songs that ended up on Let It Be and Abbey Road. So, wow, what is this? And they sound like they're having fun. They're goofing around. They're making funny voices and, you know, just all kinds of stuff like that that seem to be counter to what you would read about later about Let It Be being miserable. It's like, well, wait a minute. They were just they were just cracking each other up. So that was something that, um, when I experienced that, I can remember still being young, hearing that, thinking, wow, there's way more to the story than we've been told. Um, kind of leading off of that, do you have any particular favorite memories of being a Beatle fan? You know, whether it be like going to the Beatle fests or meeting other Beatle people. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, they're definitely the early fests or anything where you're around other fans. Now, I talk about this in one of my 70s Beatle books. I can't remember if it was uh, 2.0 or so in the 70s, but it was um, when I was becoming a Beatle fan. And so we're talking late 70s where you start looking for any opportunity. Now, Beatle Fest came to Chicago for the first time in 77. I missed that one. But I went to this next one, 78. But around that time, Beatlemania opened and came to Chicago. So I went to see that. So right now, Beatle tribute bands are dime a dozen. But back mm-hmm. then, no. So if you wanted to hear Beatle music live on stage, and the Beatles sure as hell weren't getting back together, even though it was still John Lennon's lifetime, Beatlemania, you went to see that. And it was all the bells and whistles, you know, the costume changes and lights and multimedia and all that stuff. And so that sort of scratched that itch at the time. And it was Self-plug. the kind of thing. If you want to hear more about the uh, early days of Beatlemania, go listen to my episode with Mitch Weissman. Oh, cool. Self-plug. Well, and I can do a plug as well. I had um, Marshall Crenshaw on one of my shows who played John. Perfect. Yeah, uh-huh. go, and go listen Burton to those two right now. We'll we'll wait for you. Go listen <laughs> we'll to those wait. two right now. All right, now that you're done listening to those two, we can get back to it. Yes. Uh, so I want to ask you, uh, you. You talked about quantifying art, so I think that's what I'll call this segment. Let's quantify smart. Um, mm-hmm. What is your favorite Beatles song? Well. I, it, it probably wouldn't shock you to know that changes from moment to moment, but okay. I would say consistently, if I had to pick a Desert Island song, like, okay, you get one Beatles song for the rest of your life, the one I would point to that still remains fascinating to me, and this to me is like the difference between the Beatles and, say, Herman's Hermits or some other act that you like their tunes, you, you can love them, you know, mm-hmm. they give you a lot of joy, but... Some songs you get to the bottom of, and that that's all there is to it. They're never going to yeah. continue to, to fascinate you. But like, the Beatles, I, I would say, Dave most of their D, Dozy, Beaky, Mick, and Titch, or whatever. Yeah, exactly. They had to do. <laughs> Got to the bottom of that one fairly quickly. You know. Yeah. But uh, I, I would say, for Beatles, Strawberry Fields. Really? 
Yeah, and maybe that's kind of an obvious pick because it, it just it's a pretty significant record historically in their context. It's the first post-touring record. But to me, there's so much going on there, and it, it's it's what a, a staggering not only composition but piece of production. And again, you know, this is before things change in the band dynamics. I think it's evident that you can hear all four of them fully being engaged, and certainly the producer is. So it's like a pretty high-level egalitarian collaboration in the Beatles, you know, at the start of the late period, less so going forward. There's plenty of good music they made, obviously, but um, how much of it is fully invested in by the players? You know, maybe it's a George song and John's not on it. You know, maybe it's something where Paul decides he's going to play the lead guitar. It's, it's not the same dynamic, but this one, it's still the four of them pushing forward. Kind of side question from that. What's your favorite version of Strawberry Fields? Uh, I would say, I mean, if you're talking about between the early take with the uh, Mellotron slide guitar on it, which I first heard on a bootleg and like that, and then I couldn't understand why on Anthology, when they put that out, they took out the backing vocals, which I thought was kind of dumb. Um, and then there's various iterations of the actual single. I would say um, the mix heard on that German import with ah, the purple yes. cover, Mystery Tour. Uh, the Horzu. Yeah, the Horzu, yeah. Which I didn't know at the time. I bought it. I thought it sounded amazing, but I thought every foreign pressing sounded amazing. And then it was later <laughs> on, it's like, wow, that was actually a better mix than some of the other ones. So, yeah, that'd be oh, my it's one my of the go-to. only stereo mixes. True stereo. And I think it's got a longer fade out. So, so that kind of stuff. Flip side, what is your mm. least favorite Beatles song? <sighs> you know, for some people, the obvious one is Revolution 9. And I would yeah. never ever say that. I love Revolution 9. Yeah. That, another one. You know, that, that probably is my top five, truth be told. For its Revolution to 9 is in your top five yeah because it's so that, I, I get more that out is of it fans the fans on the to run it. first oh yeah yeah <laughs> you need better fans <laughs> um maybe I, do. I don't know yeah well there's certain songs that um i recognize as being you know what to give the guys you know cut them a little slack they're working their asses off and they've got to come up with enough material to flesh out an album. And again, to, to use the Hermit's Hermit's comparison, those guys weren't working their asses off. You're you know, really they're, shitting they're, on Hermit's Hermit's today. Eh, well, you know, I, I, with all due respect to Peter and Leck, yeah. the late Leck, um, you know, they, they, they were operating under Mickey Most, who was going for the yeah. single. I don't think really cared so much about the album tracks, but in any event, when the Beatles had to come up with album tracks, especially in the early years, where they had to you know, shove those two albums out a year, as much as we love Beatles and everything they touched was pretty good and they had their high standards and all that stuff, When I Get Home is not one of my favorites. Why is that? Because it sounds strained to me. It sounds forced to me. Okay, I, 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 I get that. Which is not to say I hate it, like I, I'd never <laughs> want to hear it again. It's just like... If that comes on the radio, I might hit the next station. It, it's I, I will say it's not the strongest song on a hard day's night. 
No. I mean, that's a, Not, quite an achievement, that album is. But um, yeah. that, that's one that's like, okay. I mean, clearly you were trying to fill up two and a half minutes. And now, here's the exciting bit. We've been kind of teasing this. What is actually your favorite Beatles album? So, the pattern I discovered a while back when I started you know, being one of these people that makes lists, because a lot of people that are big rock fans like to make lists of things. And I, I It's was in like, our blood. Yeah, it's what we do. It's what we do, for better or worse. But um, it occurred so have, to me... You've seen the movie High Fidelity, right? Oh, yeah. Back when... Yes, right. Exactly. Exactly. So it occurred to me once I was about three or four albums into it. It's like, wait a minute. It's like every favorite artist of mine that made a double album... The double album is my favorite album of theirs. And it was it was like consistent. There wasn't anybody that made a double album that that record was not my favorite. Whether it's Quadrophenia or Exile on Main Street or Blonde on Blonde or London Calling. You know, it, it just seemed very consistent. And so it was with the Beatles. It was the White Album. And so I, I started to sort of self-critique and analyze, well, why is that? And it's because the thing about a White Album I, I, I don't, or the thing about a double album is that I never bought that George Martin nonsense about, well, they should have just distilled it down to a single album. It would have been really great. Well, we've seen that in the real world of rock, and that was Who's Next, where yeah. the, the failed Lifehouse project, you know, all these other magnificent songs, not least among them, Pure and Easy, got chucked because they couldn't wrap their heads around the concept and make it work and so they're like screw it let's just make another who album and take the best songs from that well we have that and with all due respect to who's next obviously you know killer material top to bottom it doesn't take you on the journey it's like listening to a greatest hits album it's it just like boom 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 and maybe some people enjoy that but i like being taken on the journey i like the valleys i like the peaks i like feeling like I'm on some kind of trip. And that's what double albums do. Feels like a greatest hits album. If I may quote uh, the kids in the hall are national treasures Mm. house or greatest hits albums are for housewives and little girls. (laughs) There you go. So, well, that, that, that says a ton right there. And that may be why intuitively I shy away from them or make my own compilations. But I, I like the sprawl of double albums because it just, you know, there's a, there's definitely a logic to it. There's you know, usually a, a killer opener and then, you know, these dips and then up and down, up and down. That's what I like. And so it is with the White Album. There's nothing in there that I think I would get rid of permanently, even a Wild Honey Pie or, you know, some of the songs that are less favorite of mine, like I Don't Pass Me By. And most of the stuff on the White Album I, I see it as having its place, and it's hard to imagine it any other way. That said, I think that the Stones killed it in 68 with an album opener over the Beatles, one of the rare instances. Sympathy for the Devil is just a magnificent achievement. Whereas back in the USSR, it's like, couldn't you have started with something else? I mean, I get where you know, fading in the jet noises makes it sort of a logical opener to something, but... I don't know. To me, it's not the strongest song. It's a it's a fine performance, but um, I don't know. Maybe Warm Gun or something should have opened the album, but uh, that's a minor quibble. It takes you on a journey, and 
side four is just about perfect from start to finish. Really? Side four? In my opinion. Yeah. I okay. mean, it's, it's genius coming off of Revolution 9 straight into Goodnight. <laughs> I, I think that's just... That's just amazing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Although I feel you know, like that's kind of why... I don't know. I think that's why uh, Good Night has suffered an unfortunate fate, because so many people just, you know, picked the tone arms up and, you know... Right. It's like, that, okay, we're the... done the album now. Right. But yeah, the, the, the record ends with, uh, with uh, Can You Take Me Back Where I Came From, which you know probably works for some people but i i think it's uh it, it, it held a special place in my heart and that, that's a journey i never get tired of taking actually i want to kind of ask it side tangent i want to know what your top five double albums of all time are well we I just mentioned some of them oh i forgot <laughs> um physical graffiti and um, so physical graffiti led zeppelin london calling Mm-hmm. Uh, Quadrophenia. Yep. Exile on Main Street. Exile on Main Street. Mm-hmm. I know that's kind of, it's become sort of conventional with Stones, like yeah. their high achievement, which kind of bothers me, but, because um, I don't, I don't, you know, to me it's not a greatest hit sounding album at all. I mean, a lot of people, personal friends of mine, it's usually a toss up between Let It Bleed and Sticky Fingers, but uh, again, Sticky Fingers is almost a little greatest hitsy to me. Because so much of that stuff is so familiar. Not all of it, but a lot of well, it. Well, I always get laughed at when I say what my favorite Stones album is. It's Satanic Majesties? It, yep. That's I love it. It, it, gets, it gets shit on so much, and I feel like I have to defend it. I think that if they'd gotten another designer and photographer, so it wouldn't be so transparent that it was you know, sort of a, a, a pepper response, nobody yeah. would have touched them. I, I, I don't even care about that. I like the lenticular cover. I like that design. It, it's cool, but you know what? I think that that's the thing that bothered people. Like, oh, God, now the Stones are putting on the costumes and doing a, a pepper. I think if they'd made the cover of Between the Buttons lenticular and put it on Satanic Majesties, people would be like, wow, the great experimental Stones album. Yeah. Because musically, you, you cannot deny it. No. In Another Land is one of my favorite Rolling Stone songs. Mm. And Citadel is one of mine. Yeah. And of yeah. course, I think the greatest album, or one of the greatest album closers of all time is, uh, oh wait, but it's not the closer. I was going to say 2,000 Light Years From Home, but then I realized that wasn't the closer. No. Yeah, you're right. Oh, and The Lantern, oh. that's a great song too. But yeah, it's a song that, or it's an album that I think gets unduly shit on for the wrong reasons. I have nothing to do with music. I mean, Jesus, how can you deny an album that's got She's a Rainbow on it? It's just, yeah. there's so much good stuff there. But, um, yeah, I mean, I would say that Sing This All Together might be the weakest track, but that's that's not saying a ton. On With The Show, there's your closer. Yeah. Yeah. If they had replaced uh, On With The Show and uh, Let's Sing This Song All Together... With uh, I don't know what were the two singles. Uh, we love you oh, yeah, and love Dandy you and Lion. Yeah, there if you they've go. done that, that would have been that fantastic. And I think you'd make a stronger case for Pepper if you chucked a couple of those tunes and put Strawberry Fields and Penny Lane on it. Yeah. yeah. Oh, but that's that's a whole nother can of worms. Yes, it is. <laughs> and lastly, 
What is your least favorite Beatles album? Mm. Again, you know, they're a yardstick that you don't, uh, you, you can't judge other artists by, because when you say least favorite, you know, my least favorite Herman's Herman's album is going to be different from God my least damn favorite it, Robert. <laughs> You had to go there. Yeah. Peter, Peter, I, I'm sure you're listening to this. I would like to take this opportunity to publicly apologize to Peter Noon. Disavow for my guest. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh, I, I started no, saying monkeys for some reason because <laughs> yeah. uh, I held them in high esteem actually, and uh, that one I probably could pick, pick a at least favorite album. But uh, that when they're good, they're really good, and I don't want to start. Well, that now on here, what's your least favorite monkeys album? Uh, well, this pull it count. Uh, uh, no. Okay, so we're talking about the the original Cold Gems yeah. '60s output. Uh, so you know, from the monkeys to changes. Yeah, monkeys to changes. Probably birds, bees, and monkeys. Okay, I, I, I mean the ones that. that are good on there are amazing. You know, uh, tapioca tundra, especially Auntie's municipal court. And you know, there's good songs on there, but then there's some stuff that I think is dreadful. I I just think it's a letdown coming off of Pisces, Aquarius, Capricorn, oh, yeah. and Jones. Yeah, the one-two punch of headquarters and Pisces back to back, man. And then following up. Uh, Birds, Bees, Monkeys with Head, which I mm-hmm. actually really love. Why couldn't the Beatles have done their soundtracks like that? You know, fill in all kinds of audio clips between the music. That would have been amazing. Yeah. But, uh, Do it yeah, the same way they did their like Christmas records. Yeah. All these kind of like little bits and stuff. Right. They had a gift for it. They did. Yeah. And now, here's my favorite. Actually, you didn't say the answer. What is your least favorite Beatles album? Oh, least favorite Beatles album. Okay, let's see. So I guess we're talking UK catalog, huh? It, uh, it could be you. If you're having a hard time with the UK, you can pick the US. Uh huh. Oh, okay. Well, that makes it easier. Yeah. Uh, uh, but even that, I mean, you, you feel guilty because there's, there's stuff is so good. Even the lesser tracks are good. We normally. Again. Your least favorite Beatles album is still probably miles ahead of anyone else. True. Yeah. And in, in, in that spirit, I, I, I would probably gravitate toward help just because it's kind of a mishmash to me. I mean, I know it's all consistent when it was recorded and all that stuff, but just it, it's almost sort of indifferently sequenced because you had to have the, the seven tracks from the film on the first side. And when I had Chris Thomas on the show, he had made the point that sometimes the difference between a good album and a great album is a sequencing. <laughs> and if I could re- re-sequence help, maybe I'd like it more than I do. But Because you know, it just seems like when you get to side two of help, they're just kind of running out of steam. Yeah, exactly. It, it, it just seems like, okay, and then we have these songs laying around, so we'll just toss them out here. I mean, I, I really enjoy Beatles 6, which uses some of those songs. I think that, to me, is a stronger listening experience. And I know it's going to be blasphemy to people listening to this that are, you know, the Beatles catalog is sacrosanct. But uh, I think for listening, listening pleasure. And I, I would also say the same of Beatles uh, Yesterday and Today. I think that's a great listen, too. Well, I, I don't think it's completely sacrilege to prefer some U.S. albums over British albums. Yeah. I mean, you I know, get that. I, it's the three revolver I am a strong tunes. defender of... Uh, you know, the Beatles' second album. I think that's oh, yeah. the perfect early Beatles record. It's just a great rock and roll album. It, it's it, it's an unwitting concept album. Yeah. 
It's, it's a very live sounding cover heavy. It's, it's just, it's a great listening experience. That sort of, it's almost like what they were striving for with Please Please Me, which is like a document of their live set. I think Dave Dexter inadvertently nailed it with the Beatles' second album. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Um, so now I got to turn it over to you. What would you like to plug? Oh, well, there is the podcast, of course, Something About the Beatles, that I hope if you're listening to the show, you might be aware of to some extent. And if you're not, well, now you are. I have a feeling anyone who's listening to my show would probably also be aware of something about the Beatles. Well, that's cool. I, I'm happy to hear that. Beyond I don't know that, if it would work the other way around. You know what? I'll, we'll put that theory to the test. I'll, I'll put a plug in that show in my next show, which is going up uh, probably the next few days. So we'll see. If you, if you uh, follow your analytics and see if you get a sappy bump, that'd be amazing. I, I'll, I'll keep an eye out for my <laughs> okay and my Canadian affiliate. Yes, that'd be awesome. Um, beyond that, I would say watch this space. And it's a little too early to tip my hand just yet, but something grand is coming in January. Something worldwide oh. and cool. That's Especially. the natural outgrowth. I think this might actually be helpful because this episode will probably be uploaded in early December. Oh. So the anticipation should be really be building by now okay. for whatever Robert <laughs> is going to shove upon the world. Yes. With both hands. With both hands. Mm-hmm. That's how you know it's good. Exactly. But yeah, and your books, of course. Where yeah, can people books. find those? Yeah, um, they're out there. Fab Four FAQ, Fab Four FAQ 2.0, Solo in the 70s, Revolver, How the Beatles Reimagined Rock and Roll. Uh, 50 Fabulous Years, if you could find it. That's the hardcover one with a DVD, which has been spin off, spun off into various iterations I have nothing to do with. But any event, fresh books will be coming probably in the next couple years. One on my beloved favorite double album, and another one that will be simultaneously deep and light at the same time. Oh, yes. That, how Deep that and light. Yeah, that's that's kind of ominous. Yeah. Well, we live in an ominous world. Well, I couldn't have said it better myself. <laughs> oh, but Robert, it's it's been a pleasure talking with you today, man. A lot of fun. I'm, I'm so glad you asked, and I'm so glad we made it happen because this has been terrific. Uh, hopefully, it was as much fun for you as it was for me. Yep. I mean, it's my first Kamikaze podcast, so... Well, what a way to to start the Kamikaze podcasts. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And end it with a big boom. Yeah. But But anyways, now it's time for me to try and do my plug. I'm still getting the hang of my spiel, so if Mm. you're listening to this on YouTube, please hit that subscribe button. Please hit that bell notification icon, too, so you get notified whenever uh, new episodes of the show go up or new episodes of anything else I'm doing go up. Uh, If you're listening elsewhere, please give us a five-star rating, even if you didn't like the episode. It helps my ego. Uh, But yeah, the show's pretty much available to stream on every streaming service known to man. And it'll probably be streaming on even more than that, because Podbean just keeps telling me, hey, guess what? You're on Stitcher now. It's like, oh, awesome. There you go. Yeah. Ain't that well, cool? <laughs> I just I just subscribed as we were speaking. Oh, thank you, Robert. There you go. So well, be curious see, to see it, uh, it works. 
It does work. And, and we'll, we'll look for the sappy bump. I will put that in the show and just see what happens. <laughs> oh, but anyways, thank you for coming on the show. Oh, this is a lot of fun. Anytime. To everyone else out there, thank you for listening. You can go home now. Fans on the Run is produced by Ethan Alexander. Additional voiceovers by Richard Phillip. This has been a Showtown production.